This is TechSnap, episode 398, for February 27th, 2019. Hello, and welcome to TechSnap, Jupiter Broadcasting Systems, Network, and Administration Podcast. My name is Wes, and I'm joined once again by Jim. Hello, Jim. What's up, Wes? As we sit down to record today, well, it's getting to be the end of the month, and that means one thing. Bills are due. Now, luckily, I live over here in Seattle, and I've got a relatively tech-savvy utility. But a recent article you had published over in ours, it reminded me not everyone is nearly so lucky. Basically, today, we're going to be talking about passwords and what not to do with them. Um... And it turns out this is kind of an endemic problem with utility companies in general. It seems like lots and lots and lots of them are storing passwords, not storing password hashes, which are sufficient to demonstrate that you're you, but storing your actual password in a way that's accessible to the site and its operators. And there's a lot of problems with that. So you might be thinking that, well, I don't have that problem because I don't do that. I just mail in my checks. But you can't really get away entirely from poor online security on the part of your utility company, because utility company logins are also one route towards identity theft. And if you haven't created that account, somebody else can pretty easily create one for you. And you would generally think that anybody who's responsible for the personal information of 10,000 people and, you know, not just running a free site online, like, you know, they're, they're making money, they're generating revenue here. You would think that's sufficient reason, like, okay, let's make sure we know what we're doing with online security. But the reality is, that's just not the way the world works yet in 2019. Before we go much farther, let's wind things back to September of 2018, when an anonymous security researcher, who we'll call X, noticed that their power company's website was offering to email, no, not reset, their account password. And of course, we've all been in that situation. You you go to your, you know, you go to whatever website, you click, oh, I don't remember exactly what I set up this this password to be. We'll get into why that shouldn't be a problem that you're having in general, but okay, skipping that, normally you get to reset your password. You have an opportunity to set a new password providing some other form of identification and then creating a new password because, in theory, they don't have your password. It was never stored in plain text. Yeah, they should not have your password. Um, Rewinding, like, you know, 1998, uh, 1999, 20 years ago, it was pretty common to store actual passwords in plain text and databases. And uh, that meant a lot of things. One thing that it meant is that whoever was actually running that website could literally just look through the database and look at passwords. It used to be a pretty common thing for sysadmins to share funny passwords that they found getting bored looking through the database, which should be horrifying now, 2019. You know, we've had a lot of time to get used to that being a bad practice. But in addition to, you know, the sysadmin possibly looking through the database, another thing that we've learned in those ensuing 20 years is literally every website gets compromised eventually. Any data that that website has gets dumped with the compromise and attackers make off with it. And if your passwords are stored in an accessible manner on that website, that's one of the things the attackers take with them. Right. Many businesses don't often think about that. You know, you you kind of have to admit, Someone who shouldn't have access to our data is going to have it. Whether it's an intruder from the outside or an employee with malicious intent, it doesn't really matter. The easiest option and the safest and proper option, especially in 2019, don't have that data at all, or at least not in clear text. 
I need to correct you there a little bit. It's not just the easiest and the safest option. It's the only option. Uh, anything other than you know strongly hashed and salted passwords with unique salt per row in the table, it's just not acceptable anymore. It's like building a car in 2019 that has uh, you know drum brakes all the way around. No, that's uh-uh. You you can't do that anymore. It's 2019. Now, unfortunately, this wasn't a problem with just one local utility company. Turns out there's 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 another service provider in the middle here providing these services. And that means there's a far wider reach, right, Jim? Yeah, so, uh, you know, X discovered this problem in their own utility company. But when X investigated a little bit further, it turns out that the utility company was, uh, they were using software designed by a company called SEDC out of Atlanta, Georgia. And SEDC is a cooperative themselves, and they service electrical and uh, water utility cooperatives all they do is create software for these folks to to run utility companies. And every one of these sites was storing passwords in an accessible manner. Uh, we eventually discovered that, uh, you know, technically the passwords weren't stored in clear text. Uh, they're stored in Oracle encrypted databases, but that doesn't matter because inside that encrypted database, again, it's the actual password, not just a hash. So that means that if you compromise the application stack, by necessity, you have access to the real password because the application itself does. That also means that, uh, you know, at the very least, system administrator level folks who are running these sites will be able to look through that database in the way that I and other sysadmins used to in, you know, plain text databases 20 years ago and just look at passwords for the lulls. Um, and in a lot of cases, it can mean that just customer service reps can literally see passwords in the plain text in the application they look at all day, basically unmonitored. They can look up anybody they want to whenever they want to and see that password. And that's a problem because that password, whether it's being seen by a customer service rep at your utility company or whether it's been you know, acquired by a hacker and it goes out into a database dump, attackers can pivot with that password and try it at other sites or resources that you use online, like your email account, uh, eBay, Amazon, even World of Warcraft, you'd be amazed how many different ways an attacker can make a buck. Having an encrypted database, well, that's great and all, and and certainly might add a level of protection, particularly for uh, offline attacks. Someone's trying to steal some disks from the data center, things like that. But as you said, the application has to use this information in the database. And once that's all decrypted, the real password is inside. And it's not just us saying this. It sounds like the legal profession has agreed with us. Yeah, yeah, that was one thing that was really frustrating about SEDC's responses to all this. Um, you know, even after the article went live at Ars Technica and they responded that day finally and said, oh, hey, you know, we've... Uh, so we already started sending out reset links instead of actually emailing people their password. And uh, now that the article has gone live, we're saying that there's going to be a phase two and we're actually going to start salting and hashing these things. But in the meantime, we were using an Oracle encrypted database and that's secure and it's fine and we were doing nothing wrong. Uh, the courts have pretty much already argued against that. Uh, LinkedIn in 2012 had a massive data breach, and part of that data breach had 6.5 million people's passwords, uh, you know, dumped and leaked online. And within hours of them being online, more than 60% of them had been cracked. Now, LinkedIn had, in fact, stored the passwords hashed. They were not in the clear. But because LinkedIn used a really crappy hash, uh, you know, they got cracked really quickly. And LinkedIn lost a lawsuit. 
It strikes me that in 2019, beyond all the legal requirements or business requirements, there's kind of also just an ethical requirement to get this right if you care at all about your customers. It does make me curious, are there relevant standards they should have been following? I wish there were more standards that they should have been following. Um, PCI, unfortunately, has nothing to do with this because PCI only protects credit card information. And the, uh, the credit card information was stored in a separate database in SEDC's own data center. And we really don't know how it was stored, but we can probably assume that they, they did everything that PCI requires because in order to be able to process payments, they actually have to undergo you know, PCI DSS audits pretty regularly. And I have no doubt that they did that and they passed them. And that's all legitimate. The problem is that PCI only goes so far. PCI protects your credit card numbers, but it does not protect your passwords. Uh, you can do anything you want to with a user's password and not violate PCI. There's not really much of anything in the way of criminal law that covers this either. LinkedIn ended up paying uh, $1.25 million to settle the lawsuit over their password breach, but it was civil, not criminal. And the basis of the lawsuit was that the company had promised users that they protected the user's information, you know, with industry best security practices. And uh, the lawsuit alleged that, you know, clearly they did not because they had used, you know, substandard hashes and it was all cracked, you know, within hours of the leak. And the suit specifically pointed out that uh, LinkedIn had not salted the passwords at all. Maybe this is a good time for a bit of a technical diversion. Oh, goody, I like those. We're talking about passwords, and really what we're talking about is, is trying to authenticate ourselves, right? A password is something that you know that you send to a service to say, I'm claiming to be this user account, or at least rightfully have access to this user account, and here's my little bit of proof. But we've come a long way, and, and really what gets me so riled up about this, there's all kinds of security implications, and as a user myself, I'm upset. But mostly, mathematicians have worked really hard, and cryptographers, to develop protocols, hashes, functions, everything that we should be taking advantage of. Yeah, and none of this stuff is news in 2019. This has been very well understood for a long time. Um, if you're not up on your password hashing basic crypto stuff, um, you know, the short version of it is the website doesn't actually need to know your password at all. A hash is a one-way cryptographic function, meaning at least in theory, you can't go backwards with it. You can hash the password and get a string of what looks like just ASCII garbage. And it will come up that way when your password is hashed every time. But you can't get back from that to the password, at least in theory. So by the site storing a hash of your password rather than the actual password, they don't know what your password is. And that helps keep you a little bit safer because unfortunately, most people tend to reuse passwords or a variation of that password, which is not any better. And we'll go into a little bit more detail on that later from site to site. So if the website never stores your password or ideally never even knows it in the first place, then you're protected from anybody who runs that website or anybody who compromises that website being able to use that password and pivot to it and attack something else like other websites, uh, you know, with your login information or maybe your email account, who knows? All right. Well, that's all well and good. Sure, I'm using a hash and ideally here a strong cryptographic hash, something that does make it really hard to go backwards. You know, you can compute things, and because you have a finite domain, sure, there's always going to be collisions, but but good hash functions means you, you can't find those collisions. So to the attacker, it's, it, it's worthless. Unfortunately, computers, well, they're pretty fast here in 2019, and that means things like rainbow tables exist, where 
I'm just going to go try to find the whole dictionary, make a bunch of combinations, and pre-compute all the hashes I can think of, and I might be able to guess some people with bad passwords. What do we do to prevent that? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, the use for a rainbow table is, you know, once you've had a, a great big database dump with millions of rows in it, uh, you know that you've got a lot of really valuable passwords that might get used all over the place. And once you have those passwords, you can actually then rehash those clear passwords with all of the most common hash algorithms you're likely to find. And then you can just go try those hashes directly against websites that use those algorithms. And hey, maybe you'll get in. The fix for that is something called salt. Now, the way salt works is you have a uh, basically just kind of a short string of random trash that gets appended to your password before your password is hashed. So that means that if a site is using a random salt for each password that it stores, it stores the salt that it uses and it stores the hash of the password with the salt tacked on the end of it or stuck on the beginning of it. When you send your the hash of your password to the site, the site lets you know what salt you're supposed to use, and it tacks that on and, in, and encrypts that, and off you go to the races. So what this does is this prevents an attacker from being able to say, well, I know millions of people are using Hunter2 with a capital H as a password, so I can just go ahead and pre-generate hashes for that with all the popular algorithms, and then just use that directly at all these sites. Well, no, you can't, because every site is using Hopefully, every site is using a random salt for all these tables. And ideally, the salt should also be unique for every password within the same site. Every time an account is created, a randomly generated salt should be created for that account, and that gets appended to the password or prepended to the password before it gets hashed. Unique per password is the perfect way to say it, because not only anytime you generate a new user, but anytime a user generates a new password, you need a new salt. And... You need that salt to be sufficiently long. If you have a really short salt, you can just put that in the rainbow table too. Yeah, so that prevents you from being uh, vulnerable to rainbow table attacks. It also prevents you from, uh, you know, having to worry about past the hash attacks, where if somebody just manages to, you know, intercept your password hash without the password itself, can they just try that hash on another site? Well, not if the site that they intercepted the hash from was salted. A lot of times people have good intentions. They they want to provide security for their users, but they might not know how, and sometimes things change pretty quickly. So you might know, like, okay, I should use a hash function, but how do you decide what to use? E even in 2019, that's not always simple. Well, unfortunately, you know, good intentions. We all know where that road leads. Um, and yeah, it's it's crypto is never simple. The thing is, if you're a developer who is going to actually write code that accepts passwords, the onus is on you to do your research and get it right. Uh, you know, there are a lot of different hashing algorithms. Uh, people used to use MD5 back in the day. Don't ever do that. MD5 is pretty good for, uh, you know, checking that you don't have any data corruption in a file, but it's only reasonably good at that. And it's no good whatsoever for trying to do, you know, actual cryptographic verification that has to withstand an attack. Uh, SHA-1 was the, you know, immediate replacement for that, but SHA-1 is also way too weak these days. It does still get used. Uh, a very common uh, Node.js library for password authentication is pbkdf2. Uh, pbkdf2 is, it's convenient because it handles both the hashing and the salting for you in uh, one relatively easy to use Node.js library. Okay, that sounds great. I like easy to use, but I'm a little concerned. Can you break this down? You just said it used SHA-1, right? How does that make any sense? So when pbkdf2 uh, handles the hashing for you, it uses the SHA-1 algorithm, but by itself, SHA-1 is still not strong enough to defend against modern attacks. 
So in order to get the kind of cryptographic strength that you need, PBKDF2 will run the same password through the SHA-1 algorithm over and over and over again. Uh, the default number of iterations is 1,000. You'll see recommendations for up to 4,096 iterations. There's a lot that can go wrong, and that's why it's important to, as Jim said, do your research, make sure you have the latest guidance. And to help, well, you can find a whole bunch of good documentation linked over at techsnap.systems slash 398. Now, Jim, we've got advice there for what developers can do. That's kind of out of my hand as an end user, though. Are there things I can do to protect myself? Yeah, absolutely. As an end user, you can actually make all of this completely go away as a problem. Uh, just stop reusing passwords between sites to begin with. If you don't reuse a password from a site that was compromised anywhere else, then it's completely useless as a pivot point. Uh, that means you're going to need to use password managers, and you're going to use, uh, to some degree, you need to use randomly generated passwords. Now, I'm personally not a big fan of uh, these password managers that just make, you know, a 30-character string of ASCII trash. Uh, yeah, that's really secure in terms of not being able to brute force, but it's more entropy than you actually need to resist an online attack, and you can't remember a single one of them, much less the majority of them. You also can't really easily just type 30 characters of random garbage in, so that means you're absolutely hamstrung if you find yourself without that password manager. It always bites me when I'm staying at a hotel and I want to log into Netflix and suddenly here I am trying to type 30 characters on one of those crappy remotes and anytime you get it wrong, start all over. But Jim, it sounds like you have something of a better way. Yeah, so there's this really great XKCD cartoon that a lot of you will have seen about passwords. And uh, the gist of the cartoon is that you should use passphrases, not passwords. And it demonstrates that with a, uh, a sample passphrase, correct horse battery staple. Um, now, a four-word passphrase, if it's truly randomly generated from a dictionary of five or 6,000 words, is good for about 44 bits of entropy. And that 44 bits of entropy, it's not enough to keep you safe from an offline attack, you know, one where somebody that's got a computer chock full of, you know, graphic processing units is just brute forcing everything they've got. In that kind of situation, they can try, you know, five billion or more combinations a second. But online attacks, on the other hand, typically those are going to be limited to no more than about one per second. And even then, an attacker is running a serious risk that their shenanigans are going to get noticed by an intrusion detection system. Right. Most sites, any site that's worth their salt, if I can use that phrase, well, of course, they're going to notice you can't log in, you know, 20 times every second and keep getting away with this. Right. So the point is, you know, 44 bits of entropy is good enough for, uh, I think it's like three years at one try per second. So that's good enough for online attacks. Uh, you know, even if you've got a site that nobody's paying any attention to and, you know, they're able to do 10 tries a second, you're still talking about months of 24-7 banging away at this website. And at that point, it's enough bandwidth that, you know, the, the system operator is likely to notice just because of the resource hit on the site itself. So that's pretty secure. But, you know, with this uh, four random words passphrase, it's so much easier to remember and in fact, you know, if you've got 40 or 50 of those things, the ones that you use fairly commonly to log into sites that you actually need to log in on a regular basis, they're going to stick in your head. You don't really need to look them up. The ones you use all the time, they're going to be there, unlike a 30-character string of trash. And the ones that you forget, that's what your password manager is for. That's a good point. And, and 
I find that it's pretty easy to do that, and and you can hold more than you think in your head. I can I can probably do at least at least four or five of the most common ones, even if they are you know fifteen twenty characters, maybe more long. If you've used them enough, if you really do need to log into those services, they'll be there. Yeah, I've got fifty plus passphrases in my head like all the time. Uh, I. You know, I, I do this stuff for a living, and I have a ridiculous number of credentials that I use regularly. And uh, I only really have to consult my password manager uh, maybe two or three times a week. Either way, it's important to be in a situation where you're not reusing your password. It's just not worth the risk. And we have so many tools in 2019. There's all kinds of password managers, ones you set up yourself, online services that you can use. Just use something. Yeah, and you know, I got to tell you, it feels pretty good when you see these big news sites about, you know, a a massive breach like LinkedIn or Yahoo or whatever. And, you know, you know that the attackers dumped the database and made off with these millions of passwords. And, you know, you're like, good luck, chump. It's not going to do you any good. A great exercise to convince yourself of the importance of password hygiene is to head on over to HaveIBeenPwned.com. This is a great little service run by Troy Hunt, where basically you enter in your email or an old password And he compares that to a huge database of database breaches that he's compiled into a whole bunch of emails and password hashes. So very quickly, you'll find out a lot more information about you is already out there on the internet. Yeah, your old passwords are out there. And I will say, you know, don't don't ever put a currently active password in a site like that. I mean, Troy Hunt's a great guy, and I have absolutely no reason to believe anything bad will happen from you putting a current password into his site. But... Don't do it anyway. If you want to put a current password in there, then change it first and then go put the one before you changed it in there and see if it showed up in those breaches. Exactly. And it's, it, it's a good point just as a reminder because, yeah, I, 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 would, I would trust this person I've never met also. <laughs> but you never know, right? Like the CDN he relies on, the ISPs involved. There's so many ways that something could go wrong. I've got a few family members who think they're pretty password savvy. And instead of reusing the same password, they kind of just mix it around a little, cut it up, change a phrase or two, maybe, but mostly just reshuffle what they've got. Is that going to work? No, man. You know, I, I encounter this all the time. I recommend to clients, you know, you need to get a password manager. You need to use passphrases. You, you need to not reuse these things. We're like, oh, well, you know, it's fine. Nobody's looking for me specifically. And, you know, over here, it's my dog's name and my wife's birthday. And then over there, it's my wife's birthday first. And then my dog's name. And I put a pound sign on the end, so I'm good to go, right? And the answer is no, you're not. Um, You know, it's very easy to think, oh, I'm nobody, and nobody's going to go through all the trouble of trying these, you know, fairly easy algorithmic changes to discover, you know, variations on these passwords. Unfortunately, although you may be right that nobody's looking for you specifically that hard, they don't need to be. The human doesn't have to get involved at an individual level to defeat that kind of password variation. That's a technique called fuzzing, and it's handled automatically. I spoke to an ethical hacker, I would like to stress, uh, named Tinker with the Dallas Hacking Group, and uh, I got Tinker to go over, you know, kind of the anatomy of a uh, password database dump and pivot. And, um, Tinker shared that, you know, he uses tools like Burp Intruder, which is a freely available penetration testing suite. And one of the things that Burp does is in addition to starting out with a list of passwords, Tinker uses a list of a couple of thousand of different rules, which will automatically fuzz those passwords when he tries to use it to 
pivot to another site or another resource. So without him actually having to look at any one individual and say, I really want to get into that guy's account, it's automatically going to try things like swapping the dog's name and the wife's birthday and putting a pound sign on the end without any human intervention whatsoever. Right. You can devise a few patterns, program those in as algorithms and permutations, and away you go. So also, since the Ars Technica article went live about SEDC, uh, readers have reached out to me in Ars Technica forum, private messages, and Twitter, and even just direct email, letting me know about plain text offending companies that they've had to deal with that have been getting on their nerves. In addition to SEDC, readers identified another two companies that design websites for utility companies, Power and Water. Uh, Advanced Utility Systems and NISC both do the exact same thing that SEDC does. They design these websites for online billing for utility customers, for water and power systems. And much like SEDC, each one of these companies claims a couple of hundred of utility companies as their clients, and both of them are verified to offer your password to you in clear text and email. Uh, For one of these companies, NISC, I actually got a screenshot from somebody who worked there of the uh, CSR, the Customer Service Representative Interface, and the people who are uh, staffing the call center, they can see your password whenever they pull up your record. Wait, so we're not we're not talking sysadmins, people with database access. Anyone who's answering the phone and, and is a customer support representative, they can just call up the password right there on their screen? Probably just about anybody who's got a login to the system at all is going to be able to look up these customer accounts and they're going to be able to see this password information. And the problem that you have there is, you know, hey, this person that didn't go out with me when I wanted them to, let me look at their password and I wonder if they use that same password for their email or their Facebook. Let me see what they're up to. It enables stalking. Well, as terrible as that is, unfortunately, the story keeps getting worse. Yeah. In addition to Advanced Utility Systems and NISC, who do this specifically for power and water companies, uh, we also uncovered Civic Plus, which is a company that designs websites for uh, basically metropolitan governments. Uh, It handles everything from agenda and meetings, uh, human resources, employee management, parks and rec, you name it. And again, clear password storage. And also IHG, an international hotel group, A reader tweeted me to complain about IHG offering to email credentials in the clear, but uh, it's almost hard to care about IHG emailing your credentials in the clear at all because the real problem there is that those credentials are just a four-digit pen, a numeric pen just like the one that you would press on the keypad at your bank, unlike at the ATM where you have to press these numbers into a keypad for up to three hours in order to finally brute force your way in. Uh, You know, this is online. Nobody's watching it. Even just at a rate of one per second, you'll have exhausted all 10,000 possible pins in under three hours. Okay, well, that's pretty embarrassing. But what do you say to skeptics who think "Ah, hotel access? What's the big deal here? Being able to brute force your way into somebody's uh, hotel group account, it's probably not going to be an issue so much with being able to lift anybody's credit card or buy anything useful there. And ironically, IHG has has sort of kept you from having to worry about somebody reusing those credentials anywhere else because you're probably not using a four-digit pin at any other site. But again, the real issue here is, you know, any potential stalkers you might have, it's going to be very easy for them to, in a pretty short amount of time, get into your account and see, you know, when are you making hotel reservations? Where are they? What room number even? Four digits is a pretty embarrassing failure. And personally, I've got to think... The people responsible, in their hearts, 
they know this is the wrong way to do things. They have to. It's 2019. Do better. I got to thinking, this whole discussion really started because X reached out to you after noticing that, you know, that their their local utility was willing to send them a a plain text password, which makes me think there's got to be things that some of our audience members can do when they run into the situation. Well, the first thing you should do is you should reach out to the company that emailed you your password. You know, call customer service and, uh, you know, let them know, hey, this is a problem. Now, whatever customer service rep answers the phone, it's really going to be above their pay grade. Hopefully, they'll forward it somewhere. Uh, If they don't, you may need to write a letter, write an email, and basically just don't give up. You know, you may need to escalate past the power company itself to uh, the, the mayor of your city, you know, your local government. Um, if you still get no traction, reach out to the EFF. Uh, tweeting is frequently really useful. A lot of the time you'll get a bigger response to a single public tweet than you will for, you know, private emails for days. Um, and then finally, you know, if you've written emails and you've called people and you've tweeted and you're still getting nothing, reach out to organizations like the EFF or, you know, your friendly local Ars Technica journalist. Exactly. And if you do run into some egregious examples or you've just got some good war stories to tell, you can reach out to us too, techsnap.systems slash contact. You can also head on over to techsnap.systems to find our whole back catalog and, of course, our RSS subscription feed information. If you'd like more of Jim, well, go check out all of his stuff on ours, and you can also find him on Twitter at JRSSNet. I'm there too. I'm at Wes Payne. You can also find both of us in some upcoming events here. We'll both be at Linux Fest Northwest, which I'm very much looking forward to. Totally stoked. Are you giving any talks at Linux Fest Northwest, Wes? Actually, I'm giving two. The first is an introduction to audio production on Linux, which might just give away a few of our secrets. The other one, if you have a developer mindset, is all about the Lambda Calculus and why it matters in the age of functional programming. That'll be a little bit over my head. Interesting. I know you're also giving two talks. What are the topics? I'll be talking about large-scale WireGuard networks and how to get the most out of ZFS. Fascinating. I can't wait. And if you can't wait either, well, you don't have to, because Jupiter Broadcasting's also going to be at scale. Now, unfortunately, Jim can't join us, but myself, Chris, and Elle will all be there. And we'd love to see you if you're going to be there, too. The easiest way to find us is to go to the Jupiter Broadcasting meetup page. We post just about every event that we're going to be at there. So if you're curious if we're going to make it to a local conference near you, that's the easiest place to check. You'll also find our study groups. This is something of a new tradition, but basically we're taking the very best Linux Academy has to offer, distilling it down, and presenting it in an easy, fun, interactive learning session right next to our traditional Jupyter Broadcasting content. Up next, we've got a deep dive into the history of Linux, and a little birdie tells me after that we're going to have a Kubernetes course. So if any of that interests you, or you just want to see what's on the Linux Academy platform in a little bit more distilled format, come check out our study groups. And that'll bring us to the end of today's episode. Thank you all for joining us, and we'll see you in a couple of weeks. Bye.